0: All right, guys, what's going on? So today I'm really excited because I'm chatting with Jordan Shallow. We're going to be talking a little bit about research and lifting culture. So Jordan, first off, I want to start by saying thanks so much for jumping on the episode with us. And do you want to just introduce yourself to the listeners who maybe don't know you?
1: Uh, yeah, man, good to see you again. It's funny, we have probably the craziest, like, first time meeting someone's story. I talk about it probably once a week. The time we met, <laughs> and then, So we had Mexican food in the middle of winter. In Toronto with Andre Milanochev and Omar Essof, which is quite interesting. Uh, but yeah, so I'm, I'm Jordan yeah. Chalo. I'm, um, I'm a chiropractor originally from Canada. I'm also a strength conditioning coach. Uh, I was a strength coach at Stanford University, a chiropractor, a chiropractor at Apple in the Silicon Valley. I started a company called Prescript. Um, we kind of focus on continuing education for fitness and healthcare professionals. I'm a competitive powerlifter in the 110 kilo class and I guess 125 kilo class uh I, I was i do concierge strength coach for most of the guys in the nfl at the moment and yeah that's that's pretty much me in a nutshell awesome man yeah we uh
0: I, I, to be honest i didn't even know there was anything under 125 kilos for weight classes I yeah, thought well there's one, up. Right. Thought cut off. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that's where the men that's where the men's weight classes start yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I 15 diet my way down to one tens a handful of times. Actually, I think my best total's at one ten, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, yeah, I prefer the much uh, healthier one twenty-five kilo class, if I'm being honest.
0: Oh, of course. Yeah, I dropped below one twenty-five. Actually, I'm below one twenty-five right now, and my homie's always making fun of me. He's like man status happens only at that one twenty-five mark. So
1: that's it, that's see, that's a European thing though. That's some Dutch shit. Because like here <laughs> Here it's like 100 kilos, like anything less than 100 kilos, but to push it to 125 or less is like, oof, that's that's some, that's some old world mad shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: So, uh, to, to kind of get right into it, um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about, because this is something that I've talked about quite a bit, and I, I know you've talked about it a lot in your podcast as well, is the impact of research on lifting culture, not just research, but the availability of information. So, it's kind of this double edged sword where, on the one hand, you know, guys like yourself who are dedicated to training and who are very serious about, you know, their goals can use it to get better results and to train more effectively. Whereas on the other hand, sometimes people use it almost as a justification to avoid hard work and training and, you know, major in the minors for, for lack of a better term. So can you kind of give your perception on how this kind of new culture is developing and, and what sort of impact it's having on, uh, on lifters in general?
1: That's the hard part. Like, I like the way I was looking at the podcast, like the projected podcast title before hopping on. And I kind of thought to myself, like research doesn't really affect lifting culture. And and there's obviously a caveat to that. Cause I don't respect anyone who really is swayed. No real lifter is going to be swayed by prevailing research, right? Like a real lift, like Ed Cohn doesn't read PubMed articles and go, Oh shit, I should probably do this. It's like, then fuck you. You know what I mean? Like you want to have petty arguments and pretend to be smart on the internet to try and siphon off people to your education platforms or, you know, into your own personal training shit. That's fine. But at the end of the day, it's not about what you know, it's about what you can prove, right? Who have you coached? How have you made the best better? How have you made yourself better? How do you educate yourself? How do you apply these concepts? How do you think critically? Do you have the humility to admit when you're wrong? If you know, like it's just, it's such an echo chamber of like factions in the way people think about biomechanics through the research lens. And it's, it's so subdivided now. I just sit back and like, you guys can argue. I'm going to go fucking train. And, and then you see that, right? Like the more that people argue on the internet, the, the on average, the smaller the circumference of your arms, right? So it's like, they're, 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 that's not for, for, for a fucking nation, right? Like, you know, the correlation is the more research you read, the smaller your arms get. And it's like, oh well, man. Maybe if you spent more time like doing bicep curls and and not reading a bunch of studies, like the science of reproducibility, like the meta science of science itself. Sorry, Flo's losing her mind, and she's deaf, so I could yell and she won't hear anything. Um, but the meta science on science is not good. Right, like the lack of abilities for scientific studies to be reproduced and yield similar results is astonishing. It's like, yeah, that's what that's, that study yielded because it was done on a Tuesday. But what if you did it on a Thursday? Or what if Mercury was in retrograde? Or whatever, maybe the fucking examiner was a Sagittarius. I don't know. It's like, it's not, I don't know, it to me. There's nothing new under the sun and people are just using research as a, as a, as a, just another way of confirmation wise. The same way, man, like coming up, I remember when, uh, everyone was shocked when shreds was outed for Photoshopping their pictures. It's like, yeah, no shit. What did you think they were doing? Right. Did you think this chick had a two inch waist and like, you know, a 52 inch chest? Like obviously it was photoshopped. Now the nerds are having their day. Right now the people are like coming out and massaging research and misinterpreting conclusions and the data, and even just stacking the deck on the parameters of the research to make it to just prove their point. It's, it's human nature just playing itself out in a different arena, man. It's really sad because like when it comes to actual lifting culture, it's almost antithetical to a certain degree, which sounds really bad, but that's the state of research right now is I think it's being so poorly done at a mass level and so poorly misinterpreted that it's going to take a lot, not a lot to change my mind, but <laughs> it, when I go to examine research now, as stuff gets popular, I'm like, ah, I'm never like, I'm, I'm always underwhelmed.
0: Yeah. Well, I think a big part of that is because your introduction was like Dan Green. So you went from zero to the best in the world and you got, I mean, you spent so much time with him working uh, in in his gym. You had your own uh, clinic in there for a while as well, I know. And um, it, it almost feels like now you're kind of, and I definitely don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's almost like you're kind of seeing things in reverse order, you know, where it's like, here's what works. And then now there's all this kind of research that's coming behind that. And you're like, that's bullshit. That's good. That sucks. That's okay. That's, you know. Um, and, and so it's, it's, it's kind of funny because when you do get around people who are like serious lifters, yeah, they don't, they don't really talk about research in the, in the same way. It's more like, Oh, I I put my arm like this because I find my lats get a little tighter, you know? And it's not really a discussion of biomechanics as it is like just functionality. It's like, do you do it? Does it feel good? If not fuck off. And if it does, then great. You know, it's Um, funny.
1: The first article I ever wrote, was what we can learn from research. I wrote it for my friend. His name is Craig Caperso. He's like a, he was a classic men's physique bodybuilder way back in the day. And he asked me to write stuff for his website when I was still a chiropractic college. And I still remember the article because it was basically what you can learn from research is the scientific method, right? Like learn how to control your variables, learn how to impose a hypothesis, learn how to you know, pick out subjects, or maybe you are the subject. Right, and learn how to reevaluate your your data and to maybe change uh, or come to a conclusion that would potentially change the way you approach the situation next time. Right, So I think the scientific method is valuable, but when people are using the scientific method and weaponizing it to prove their own bias, it's like, I'm, I'm out, I'm done, I'm going to go lift weights.
0: Yeah, actually that's a really important distinction that you made as well. Um, just being a little bit more critical in your analysis versus what specific thing we're actually analyzing you know like I remember when uh, occlusion training came out and it was a huge thing and everyone was talking to me about it and I was just like I was I'm usually really skeptical about a lot of like new things generally because you know you look at guys who were some of the biggest monsters in the past and like Honestly, they didn't really know about protein. They were just like, I'm going to eat a lot and I'm going to train like a bodybuilder and I'm going to lift really heavy weights. Like you look at all the old school powerlifters, they all look like bodybuilders, right. you know? And I don't think any of them knew about, you know, blood flow restriction training or any of these things. And, and I don't want to say that in a dismissive way and be like, oh, you know, there's no value to any of these things, period. But it's like, I think that when you compare the magnitude of the, the impact that these things are going to have... I'm pretty sure that we've done, you know, a damn good job at, at identifying what works and what doesn't. And the big kind of underlying factor there is effort, you know, and like, so, so what are some of the ways that you've seen people kind of talk themselves out of hard work? Because like hard work is like, it's a currency that doesn't really get used anymore in, in a lot of, uh, in a lot of spaces, you know?
1: Yeah, it's, it's tough, right? Like, because there is a place to monitor fatigue. So I'm going to take maybe two approaches at this. Biometrics, I think, have been a very popular one. Um, so biometrics, like HRV readers and things like this, you know, um, uh, what, would be another, um, what would be another example? I guess but yeah, the HRV is kind of the one that really stands out. And the other one I would take is... Um, Maybe let's start with biometrics and we'll exp- expand on it if we need to. But I think having a watch tell me whether or not I'm ready to train or a band around my wrist tell me I'm ready to train is for 99% of people, probably not a valuable tool, right? Like it is probably going to confirm their bias, right? And like it's – it's it's I notice this with friends that I have. I give advice of, in, in, a, in a very particular way. I'm pretty like to the point. I'm not very sensitive – and I realized when my friends come to me for advice, they're coming for Jordan advice, right? They're not coming for any other advice, but Jordan advice. So if I give them like, you know, the, the soft and sweet story, it's like, that's not what they came to me for. Cause if they were coming to me for that, they'd go to someone else. If they wanted to hear, you know, the, 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 the rose colored glasses version of their, their predicament, they just wouldn't come to me. So it's like, when they come to me for advice, I need to give them the Jordan advice. Right. So it's like, and i know that they'll act on that advice because they came to me because that's what they want to hear if that's not what they want they know what they're going to hear when they come to me i'm not going to blow their mind and be like well you know consider your feelings or bullshit like that i I'd be like you're being an idiot and they'll be like, oh fuck you thank you so much it's like yeah i know that's what you want to hear that's why you came to me so people defer to these devices in a similar fashion where it's like they just go to the watch to tell them what they want to hear and if The watch doesn't tell them what they want to hear. They just fucking do what they want anyways. Right. So people are using like, oh, my HRV is low or this, that, and the other. It's like, man, I've had some of my best training sessions when I've been on three, four hours sleep. Like I remember finishing undergrad and doing like, you know, three, four days of all nighters, stress through the roof, trying to get the grades. And I think I went in after and squatted a PR because I was just like, you know, there's an incalculable. There's an incalculable, intangible variable that just can't be equated with a wearable on your wrist. So I think technology's emergence in with, um, like, in with um, measuring fatigue and that has been one of the the big catalysts to really the death of hard work. Is like, well, I would, but you know, my HRV is 37, so I mean, I just couldn't risk it. And, and that kind of dovetails into my other point is the is the fear around injuries like the injury prevention crowd and i see this coming from a clinical standpoint of like you know everyone trying to sell someone that like on this idea that you can mitigate the risk of injury it's like and this is going to sound so hard-headed at times but it's like at a certain degree if you're not getting hurt you're not trying which is sounds really fucked up from a chiropractor but it's as an athlete everyone I know has flown too close to the sun once just to feel how hot it is. Right. So it's like then that's that I think is a big differentiator where it's like that market of fear mongering and like, you know, un, un F yourself and do all this stuff. And it's like, you're fine. You're fine. Like a lot of people really don't have the mental fortitude to go there and they end up miles back from any sort of point of danger or harm. So I think those would be the two technology sort of like being, becoming the ghost in the machine. And then the the market around injury prevention um, are two things that are really kind of put to rest hard work in most training circles.
0: Yeah. It's funny because like a lot of the times when you start to rely on these external sources for, for, of information, whether it be HRV or other kind of metrics, a lot of the times it can kind of be one of two things. Like if if the right person's using it, it can bolster what they're already doing and make them do go a little bit better. You know, that's more so in like the, the sport coaching, like football players, things like that. Um, But a lot of the times what ends up happening is you end up giving up autonomy where, like you were saying, you know, some of the best sessions you'll have and every lifter knows this, like you go in and you just feel like dog shit and you just crush a huge PR. And it's like, and then other days you feel great and you can't lift a thing. And, you know, sometimes there's reasons for it, but sometimes there's just not. And and like you said, it's that kind of intangible variable where it's like, you know, are you mentally tough enough? Do you just fucking grind through and and make it happen? And yeah, the the cost of giving up autonomy over time can really be the difference between you just staying average and you becoming like really, really an impressive lifter or athlete, whatever it is you're trying to do. I, I also like what you said about the whole confirmation bias, right? Where it's like, you look at these things and if they tell you what you want to tell, what you want it to say, then then you're like, awesome, I'm going to keep moving forward. And if it's like, hey, don't PR today, you're like, fuck it. What does this thing know? It's just a device. There's too many incalculable. And it's just like, it's like, okay, well, then why do you have it? <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. So, but that kind of back to the, the initial uh, comment that I made earlier about you training with Dan Green, like, how important is it to have other people around you who
1: just are like on that next level to kind of like set you straight yeah and i think dude that's obviously i think it's it's invaluable but you see it right like boss barbell club was a really at the time i was there like in the recent powerlifting history was the most impressive gym ever like People don't realize it. And, you know, Mark can call his gym the strongest gym in the West, but it's like, you know, you bring that shit two hours down the road and you're going to get shown what's what and who's who, right? Like, Because we had Dan Green, Andrew Herbert, um, Christy Hawkins, and Emily Who? So I would go, and that's just to name a handful uh, of, like, the top lifters, but every single one of them at a certain point had all the weight, all the records in their weight class. Christy Hawkins dominates the 165. Emily 113 and 124. Uh, Dan and Andrew both had their hand at 242 and 220. And so, but you see that though, like you see that in gyms if you pay attention. Like, you know, I'm out here in Miami at the moment. Like hybrid performance. They were like Marcus Leone last year was. You know, he'll knock down the uh, down the door of a 2300 total at the U.S. Open next year. You go up the road. Um, to where Dan Bell trains, there's Dan Bell, there's Seth Albersworth, and there's a handful of other guys. Uh, you go to Indianapolis, right? There's Gentilly and Garrett fear. You, uh, you go down to Florida and there's like big techs Jim. And then there's, uh, there's, uh, Ben Pollock and, um, uh, Rob Hall, Right. So it's, to me, it's a psychological benefit that that really like defines a true lifter. Right. Like that's why I kind of let off with like research doesn't affect lifters. It affects people who want to be lifters, but it doesn't affect real lifters. Because I, I look at it like a similar in kind to like the Roger Bannister effect, right? Where Bannister cracks a four-minute mile, and the next weekend or in months to come, everyone starts to crack the four-minute mile. Where what if, what if you were up the next race or the next set, and it was your turn to run the mile? Right? And that's how it works in these gyms, where it's like, you know, Dan and Andrew were going back and forth on, you know, you're gonna deadlift, you're gonna deficit deadlift i don't know 760 for reps all right well i guess i gotta do 760 for either more reps or 804 off a deficit it's like when does this stop right so i think there is such an intangible environment and it's like when you kind of know what the like what a human body is capable of it's really only like what's between the ears that's going to set it apart and there's something about like competition in athletes, and that like prey drive is like very real, and so to put yourself in a situation like that is going to just it's 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 everything. And there's no there's no there's no science, there's no principle, there's no research study that could trump that psychological boost of being in a room with the best in the world.
0: I had one of those kind of aha moments myself, and I've told this a handful of times where uh, I just moved back to Calgary couple months ago. And so I'm training at, uh, well, right now I'm training in a garage because everything's shut down, but uh, right. before I was training at the strength edge. And so that's where uh, Bryce Krauchuk trained. Right. Yeah, I remember the first day that I walked in there, like I walked in and literally I opened up the door and right in front of me, he's facing me, he's unracking 805 ah. and he's squatting it. And I'm like, what the fuck? And the thing is he was wearing a, this was equipped, but I didn't know I was very new to powerlifting at that time. And I was just like holy shit, this guy's squatting 800 and I'm over here thinking like 500 is a huge deal. Okay, I guess I got to get my shit together, you know? And like within three months, like I had been plateaued for, I don't know, probably like seven or nine months. And like within three months, I hit like a 50 pound PR on like everything. And I'm confident that it was because I saw him squat that. Like I bet a million dollars on it because it was just like, I was like, this is fucking happening, you know? you just dig deeper, you push yourself harder. And like you were saying about the whole injury thing, you know, you start being more comfortable with just flirting that line and being like, well, if it happens, it happens. Let's see.
1: You know? Yeah. I think a large part of that is like, you would walk into any other gym and this is the hard, when you get as deep into it as we have is you'd walk into any other gym and you'd be a fucking unit, right? Like everyone would be like, what just came down like goddamn beanstalk and into this gym, right? And it, it, you can rest on your laurels. Like, I don't know, I've been traveling for like three years now. And if I go into any gym that's not boss barbell club, I'm in the top 5%. Right? I'm 5'11", I'll wear J's, I'm six foot, I'm 265, 270 on average. And it's like, to me or you, you're like, yeah, yeah what, what are you doing, skinny? You're not even a man until you're 275, where it's like, You're a a superhero to normal people. Like, what is the average person? Like, 180 pounds? Like, you walk in, you get 100 pounds on someone. And there's a complacency that comes with, you know, being at the top. So I think to a certain degree, man, like, just the presence and understanding what's possible just opens up and keeps you hungry. It's like, man, I don't, oh, flow. you're losing it. I don't want to be seen as, you know, subhuman, less than 125 kilos. I just, I get my weight up where it's like, if I walk into 24 hour fitness, I'm good. I'm, I'm good for a while. I'm going to, I'm going to skip my post workout meal and I don't know, I'm going to go take a nap or something.
0: Yeah, man. Actually, it was funny because like I was, uh, looking at my, um, at, at my buddy's garage and he just has a TV on and he usually he's playing a podcast and, uh, it was funny because one of there was this like YouTube video that came on. And I think it was Mark Bell and Eddie Cohen was like coaching a bunch of people on the deadlift at uh, at, at uh, the Super Training Gym. And I remember because I'd watched this video like four years ago or four and a half years ago when I like first got into powerlifting. And I remember looking at these guys and they were all pulling like six hundred pounds, seven hundred pounds, and I was like, oh my god, they're monsters. And now I remember watching it and being like, seriously, like that's not that great. And then meanwhile, like my buddy next to me, he just recently, like maybe a couple months ago, two months ago, pulled like 805 for a double. And it's just like, and then looking at that and you're like, oh shit, like that's fucking crazy. You know, like when, when you start to, I guess just get around people. And so my one friend that I was lucky enough to train with um, uh, this guy, like he, he's taught me a ton about deadlifting. Just because, like, even though he pulls conventional, it's, like, I don't know, man. When I see him lift, I'm just, like, yo, I I got I to gotta, I gotta do it, <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> I can't I can't let him outpace me by more than, like, 60 pounds. It's just ridiculous, you know? And then even when I was in uh, Ontario as well, like, lifting with um, uh, JC. I think you know JC, yeah? Yeah,
1: JC great. Sure.
0: Yeah, so, like, he, he taught me, um, like, his technique on wedging. And I was just like, oh, my God. And, like, everything just clicked. And I started hitting, like, just PR after PR after PR. And, like, that's one thing that you absolutely do not get unless you're working with someone who who can actually, like, push some serious weight. Is You don't get those little cues, those little technical uh, adjustments, you know, because, I mean, they can't lift, right?
1: Yeah, and I think the one of the biggest things that I've taken away from being in situations where, like, you know, you can go into a gym and you get this very, like – real-time very visceral feedback is it's kind of highlighted to me like the importance of visualization because it's like that's really what you're doing when you watch jc wedge into like an 804 right like jc's got a crazy pull it's you're visualizing you doing that it's easy to do because it's right in front of you but when there's no one around and you're not seeing that how do you still do it it's like well you got to go inside and play that tape like it's already happened And that's something that, you know, when when you deal with like real athletes, I don't want to say real athletes, like lifters aren't real athletes, but when you deal with like more conventional sport athletes, one of the first things that they're like a sports psych will work on is visualization, right? Like how many times do you probably seen this? How many times have you seen someone miss a lift on a platform and the next lifter miss a lift? Right? Because yeah. You, you should be like if a lifter hits it and then everyone's hype and then the next lifter hits it and the next lifter hits it and it's a crazy meet, but it's like someone fucks off and misses. It's like, dude, you just brought the whole energy because everyone's visualizing a miss now. Right. And then they're not. And so you got to learn how to like really control that in your head when you don't have a gym full of people. And obviously like the best way to do it is to just have a gym full of people. But in times when you don't, it's like, you got to be able to play that track. Yeah,
0: that's that's a really good point. Actually, like visualization is so important. And it, it just kind of builds that mentality into you as well. Like, uh, the, the one thing, and obviously, I'm going to be a little bit more biased, but all of my friends who are really, really good lifters are also people that if you look at them the wrong way, they'll, they'll break your fucking neck. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, they're just like, and they're really, really nice guys, like super polite, really friendly. They're great. But if like, they have that switch in their head where it's like if you cross the boundary i'm going to throw you off the balcony kind of thing and and i think that's so important to be able to kind of call on that like energy and whether it's rage or just focus or flow state or whatever you want to call it where they can just kind of get into that headspace where it's like nothing matters this barbell belongs
1: to me and i'm going to do whatever the fuck i want with it you know yeah. That's like the Kirk Kowalski. If you looked at, if you ever watched Power <laughs> Unlimited, Power Unlimited, like Power Unlimited to me is like one of the best docos of all time. And it's just available like on YouTube. And when Korsi comes in, he talks about squatting at five in the morning and he talks about some guy being in his squat rack, and he's like bullshitting about getting drunk the night before and him literally hurling a 45 pound plate across the gym. It's like, that's what it, that's what it takes, man, like to be the best in the world. And like, I'd never claim to be that, but I've definitely, you know, some of my closest friends are definitely that and what it takes for it to be the best in the world. Like, it's not pretty. Like, you know, if some of you guys may watch like the, the Michael Jordan, uh, uh, what was that series called? Um, last dance, uh, I think. the last dance. Yeah. Like, and there's a Tiger Woods one coming out on HBO. Like, I can guarantee you that that's not going to be a flattering look at a good humanitarian. It's like, you can either be Mother Teresa or you can be the best in the world. Uh, and rarely are those two things go You need to have, like you said, that switch. And you need to know when and how to call on it. Um, and if you can do that effectively and you can control and, like, channel that aggression... You're going to be a dangerous, dangerous person, regardless of what you're trying to do, whether it's lifting weights, whether it's, you know, I have friends that are in the military that are like this, like really nice guys, but when they have a job to do, they have a job to do and they take that job very seriously.
0: No, hundred percent. And, uh, it's funny too, cause like one of the things that, um, that I've always noticed when I'm having conversations with people, like I'll get messages on Instagram. People ask me questions about certain things. And uh, it, it usually becomes pretty apparent that a lot of the times people don't necessarily know what they're getting themselves into when they set a goal for themselves. You know, they'll say like, I want to win provincials or nationals worlds or, you know, whatever it might be, but they usually don't really understand what's, actually at stake, the kind of sacrifices they have to make, or, you know, how it's going to detract from other aspects of their life, you know, whether it's relational or, or, you know, social, whatever. And I think that's something that a lot of the times when people run into that, they're just not prepared for it. You know, like they put in hard work and they're like, oh man, I've been working really hard. I should be here. And they're like, and then they see someone who's actually putting in work and it's like, oh, you leave parties at 10 p.m. so you can get sleep to go, you know, train the next day. Oh, you're making sure that you carry around a backpack full of food with you. Oh, at work, you'll leave work to go and eat or to nap or whatever. Like the amount of effort required to reach a goal that's that's really impressive is like, I think, a lot more than what people anticipate. And when they see that, they kind of, they get a little spooked by it, you know, and, and they can kind of be like,
1: ah, I don't know anymore, man.
0: <laughs> I don't know if this yeah. is for me.
1: And it's crazy to me. I was talking about some of this the other day. Like I grew up playing hockey and I was like a mediocre athlete when I was like young, like 13, 14, I showed some like skill promise. Like I was a half decent goalie. And I remember I just, I don't know, you stumble across, I stumble across it somewhat like organically. It's like, Hey, I like hockey and I want to continue to play. But at 14, it's like, if you're smart, you can go and kind of go like, Hey, there are kids who are getting looked at for like OHL kind of, or juniors now. So it's like 17, 18 comes quick. And there's kids in the NHL at like 18, 19 years old. So I was like, all right. And all I did was I just started, like when the puck wasn't near me in practice, I just started doing some drills, just like sliding across the crease and sliding back and like doing some plays. And I was just, I got left alone for the most part. Like no one said anything, but I did that for two or three seasons. And by the time juniors came around, I was making a roster. And I was like, really, that's all it, that's all it took it just took for me just to little like because you say that through the lens of someone who's obviously like done all those things they've taken the naps and taken the meals and but like it's not that hard that's my biggest thing and maybe it's not hard to us because we want the desired outcome and it's like really like all i need to do is like eat some more food and sleep more it's like is that really that difficult and so it comes down to me it's like and this is where i I kind of differ a little bit. Uh, i maybe not differ, but like my stance is it's not how bad do you want it? It's how much do you love it? Do you love it enough to get the sleep and eat the meals? Cause if you do, then it's an easy decision. Like this, this, you know, discipline, fucking militant, hardcore. I'm going to kick your ass thing. It's like, yeah, it's, it's not that man. Like that, that doesn't, that doesn't do it at the end of the day. Like to me, it's, do you love the idea of being, at least stronger than you were or stronger than your competition, then you'll do what's necessary. And if you don't, a lot of times the realization people come to is that they really just didn't love it that much. They love the idea of it. I love the idea of being stronger or winning in me. It's like, okay, that'll get you certain. That'll get you, that'll get you third place. Right. But if you love the actual process of doing what it takes, then you'll, you'll win every time.
0: Yeah, no. And and that's a good point too. Um, I I actually made a video about this, I think yesterday uh, because I had someone reach out and ask me about like how I stay motivated and stuff like that. And I honestly just told them that I don't really stay motivated. Like one, I do enjoy it. But a lot of the times when I'm lifting, I probably don't enjoy like, you know, doing 10 rep maxes or like just any of the nonsense that I program for myself. But like, uh, you know, like you leave there and you're like, you know what, I accomplished something today. And, and it means something to you and it's, it's worthwhile, it's, it's worth the sacrifice. And so, yeah, like you said, you do it cause you love it. Not necessarily because someone has to hold a gun to your head, but at the same time, like I also think that if you're looking to external sources of motivation all the time, it's like, dude, I question whether or not this is something you actually want, right. you know, like why, why do you always need to like, why would I need to go and watch you, you know, give me a pump up talk just so I can make it into the gym or, so I can get to bed earlier, you know, like, why do I need to always be watching CT Fletcher give rants on this stuff? You know, it's like, dude, if if you don't want it, then you don't want it. And if you do, then, you know, like every day is going to look the same. It's just going to be the same boring old shit over and over and over. And then you just, you know, wake up in 15, 20 years and you're there, you know, or you're pretty close. Right. And that, that, I think that's the biggest uh, thing that people get wrong is they think they, they always try and fill their time with You know, they think it's going to be like a Rocky montage where it's like, oh, if I just do more, more, more. And it's like, man, usually you have to do less. You have to cut certain people out of your life. You have to sleep more. You have to make better decisions. You got to eat healthier. You got to have discernment. You got to make sure your life is pretty stress-free. You got to make sure you're having fun in your life outside of your goals because that's going to give you the the fuel and all that shit to actually do really well inside. Uh, And it's like, you know, there's so much stuff that you have to do that it's like, if you don't love it and you're always looking for motivation, it's like, dude,
1: why are you doing it? I think people are doing it. I think you hit the head, nail on the head about like they're looking for something to give themselves meaning. right? I, I think that's like a fundamental like guiding principle as to why most people do anything. It's like they do it for like a sense of meaning. And it's like, the thing is, is, it doesn't have to be lifting right? I'm lucky, I'm sure you consider yourself lucky that for whatever reason, the thing that gives you some meaning, and I'm not saying it's going to be all of it, is lifting, is like the literal bearing of a cross. Like, this is my hill to die on, this is what I do. But it's like, it's cool if it's not that, right? Like There's obvious, like, you know, you're a big dude, that helps in other parts of your life. I'm sure there are points where you didn't know that if you were a smaller person you would be in a vulnerable situation you didn't think about it because you're 6'4 like 280 you scare the shit out of most mortals it's like that guy took someone else's wallet that night right so people want they want that life like they want what comes with like you know and i'm maybe just for like kind of putting this out there it might not be true for everyone but like i think because i can play an instrument right like i play guitar not well but i play it it's something i do outside of lifting but unless if uh, unless I'm wearing like a fender t-shirt, you would have no idea. It is quite obvious to me that you, Daniel, enjoy lifting because you're taking up 90% of the screen and it's just your shoulders and head, right? So it's a a really interesting hobby because like, let's, I mean, let's not mince words. Like it is absolutely a hobby. The money that's involved in it is you're playing for plastic trophies in the back of some guy's dusty fucking garage. Like it's lost so a-
0: much money
1: for this fucking hobby. Definitely yeah, yeah. have not ever made any money
0: off of it. Any money that I've made has been lost in like fucking diet and all that bullshit. So yeah, hundred <laughs> percent.
1: But it, there's it's it's unlike every other hobby, like like an instrument, or if you're into art or traveling, it's like unless. You know, there's nothing you really wear on your sleeve like, you know, a finding meaning in lifting because it's it's just such a visual, visceral thing. Like, and it's a byproduct that I think a lot of people seek after Blair or sought after. But it's like if I, I always thought about this because I've been posed this question a few times. It's like, what if I had a daughter? Would you want her to have a boyfriend that was a lifter? And I, and I thought about it and I've gone back and forth over the years and like, I don't have kids and I don't know if I ever will, but I've I've changed my mind because I actually think that, yeah, I would want a kid who was a lifter because that, that tells me he does the shit he doesn't want to do. It tells me he can kind of stick to something that means something to him. Like there's a certain level of commitment where it's, you can kind of fleetingly come in and like me with guitars, like, yeah, I play guitar, but like not well, like I could, I could rip your smoke on the water as good as anyone or, I could fuck my way through a Zeppelin song, but it's like, I haven't stuck to anything. Like I've stuck to lifting like hell or high water. That's what I like to do. So it's like, there is such a weird societal slant on the ancillary outcomes of lifting or like the, the side effects of lifting out more than what we do it for. That is sought after. So people see the end result and go, Oh, I want to be, big or I want to be strong but it's like that's not really why I started lifting I just I don't know it's this thing that I sucked at and as I got better at it I felt better and it was like a a continual challenge that there's all there's still more plates that can go on the bar I guess I'm not done here yet it it definitely kind of takes on a life of its own as you start to kind of get more into it it's almost like the
0: the process kind of becomes the goal you know you go Uh, you you have good sessions and then you just kind of start stacking on good sessions and I don't know, at least for myself anyways, like I, I do think it's important to have competitions and stuff like that. Cause then it's like, you have something to hold you accountable. But at the same time, I always try and not think too far in the future because I'm like, if I know what I need to do today and I just do a really good job then, and I keep doing that, then I'm, I'm going to be good. You know, whether it's three months, six months, 10 years, whatever. And, uh, and yeah, it, it it definitely does kind of take on a life of its own where like when I first started lifting, I, I started lifting because uh, I was a boxer. I stopped boxing and that was like six hours of my day, seven days a week for I don't know how many years. And so I would literally finish work. I'd go home and I would just literally sit down in an empty house and I'd be like, well, I guess I'm just going to wait for tomorrow. And, <laughs> uh, and, and so then I was like... Uh, I, one, one of the, uh, fighters that I coached happened to be like an Olympic bobsleigh athlete. He was just like a freak athlete, um, Olympic weightlifter, just super, super strong and explosive. He would do rebound jumps, like at like five feet. He just be, like, huh. boom, 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 like three in a row, like just a freak and super jacked. And, um, so I was like, Oh, you know what? Maybe I'll try bobsleigh. And, uh, I remember they were telling that the prerequisites were like a clean and jerk. And I was like, what the fuck is a clean and jerk? And, huh. I went to, uh, to an Olympic weightlifting club. And I remember my first day again, I'm 165 and I'm 6'2, you know? And uh, I remember there, there was a girl there who was outlifting me. And I was just like, oh dear, this, <laughs> this can't be right, you know? And, uh, and, and so, like, I was not good at it. I was clumsy. I was terrible. My first meet, I did in like sneakers and running shorts, you know? Like, I didn't have a singlet, I didn't have anything. And, uh, and so I didn't enjoy it, but I was just like, man, I'm weak as shit. And maybe if I was less weak as shit, I'd probably, you know, feel better about it. And then, you know, here I am like several years later and I don't know, it's just like, it's, it's kind of funny how these things evolve. But one of the things actually I I did want to get your input on was, uh, like weight cuts and, and like kind of short-term thinking versus long-term thinking. Cause like, there's a guy I know, actually there's lots of guys I know who are six, six, two, competing at the one fifties. And I'm just like, bro, what the fuck? You're like a hundred pounds too light right now. What do you do? You know,
1: (laughs) it's, I mean, it's what it's worth. Yeah, man. Like I've only done one meet where I haven't cut. Um, I was bred in a very competitive environment, right? Like I felt like I needed to suffer because my training partners suffered. Like I've watched Dan Green and Andrew Herbert go through the most insane weight cuts you've ever seen. And I was constantly at meets like in early days, it wasn't meets I was competing at. And luckily, you know, my last couple of meets have been I've been able to compete alongside Andrew a few times. But like you just see these guys, and it's like at the high level, yeah, sure. Cut weight if you like a world record's on the table. Or if you just want to be as competitive as you can, but like understand like what it takes to have competitive numbers. Like I was cutting in, I was cutting down to 242 from about 275 because I wanted to hit a 1900 pound total at 242, which isn't you know great. And I feel like the older we get, we see these kids coming up like 804. It's just like that's your entry level boilerplate deadlift now, where it's like back in the day that was you know that was a showstopper. But I think, yeah, what is it worth to you outside the gym? Like, do you want to maintain a certain physique? And is powerlifting just sort of this thing that you do because you like the calculable nature of progressive overload or how it is you program? You like the type A, very controlled environment. You like the skill aspect of it. And, yeah, whatever, man, whatever makes you happy. It's like, for me, if you want it, one of the best ways to get stronger is to get bigger like weight moves weight from like a kind of a physics perspective. And if you can put on some muscle mass in the process, I think you're going to be a lot better off. So, um, yeah, people that compete a lot, people that don't allow themselves to really grow into and start to fill out higher weight classes. Like I had a question to my q the other day about this, and I think I'm getting it from Joe Sullivan, but it could be a Dan quote, but it's, it's power lifting, not power cutting. So it's like, it's about the lifting part, right? Yeah. So, uh, and I couldn't agree more. Like, you know, I probably won't make a cut down into the 110s ever again. um, Because I think I'm at a point where I can fill out and lean out and be a big, it's really strong 275 and be competitive. Um, So, yeah, I've just, you know, to each their own. But if you want to be, if you want to be competitive, I think there's nothing wrong with gaining weight, especially if you're 6'2", 150, uh, there's definitely some room to grow. And with that growth will come strength. And with that growth too comes like new leverages, right? Like my lifting has evolved so much as I've gotten bigger. Like I started training and I was, um, I don't know, 180 pounds in the, in the 10th grade or something like that. And I, you know, my technique has evolved as my size and shape has changed. And I think it's just, you really get to know how to like, I don't know, it's, it's a constant learning process. Like when I cut weight versus when I compete big, It's just a totally different, it's a different body that you're dealing with. So I think it's really fun from just a learning perspective to start to put on size and see what you're capable of, like actual strength. And some people would be blown away if they, you put 20, 30 pounds on someone and all of a sudden they're lifting numbers that like they never once imagined. It's like, dude, like this is just, you're just scratching the surface, man. This is nothing. Imagine if you started actually leaning out and kind of improving your body composition and doing this in sound of like a you know, a cyclical fashion, you know, sky's the limit for a lot of these people. And I think a lot of people, again, it might not be worth their, their time or their effort to do so. But, you know, I think, you know, I think it's something that it's a part of the sport. It can be dangerous, but that, I think it reinforces the meaning for some people, right? Like I've done meets where I haven't cut and it's just like, it's just like a long day at the gym. Where it's like meets where I've caught them in the sauna before. I'm like, why the fuck am I doing? It's like, oh yeah, because this means something to me, because it means something to me. Like the respect of the people I live with that means something to me, right? Because the 1901 total at 242 sounds way cooler than a 1901 total at 275, right? And like that, it meant some. So fucking in the sauna I go, right? And doing all the crazy shit we do to cut weight. But if it doesn't mean that much to you, then yeah, don't do it. But if it does, or you think it might, then yeah, I mean, kind of push the envelope and, you know, build and cut and build and cut and build and cut. And yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's do whatever the fuck you want. I don't really care. But I, I think it has turned into, like, the cutting has become very prominent in place where it doesn't need. Like, if you're 155 pounds, don't cut. Because no one gives a shit. Like, sorry, but nobody gives a shit. Right? Like, no one cares until there's 700 pounds on the bar. Like that's as much as it's not a spectator sport, it becomes a spectator sport when there's 700 pounds on the bar.
0: So it's funny, like speak, speaking of that, I remember I was at a gym one time. This was when I first moved down to uh, Ontario and I was, uh, I was coaching at a gym and one of the women came up to me and she's like, Hey, so like, uh, like, is it true? And I'm like, is what true? And she's like, one of the people were telling me they saw on your Instagram, you were deadlifting 800 pounds. And I was like, no, 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 I can't deadlift 800 pounds, like I wish, you know, in, in the future, but not not now. And she's like, well, how much do you lift right now? And I was like, a little over 700. She's like, oh, okay. Ah. It's like, fuck you, like what are you talking about? As if that's oh. like something to scoff at, but, but it's so true because like, like you said a minute ago, right? Um, you get these guys who is just like a 17 year old dude just pulling 800 for a double and you're like, where, like, what created this guy? Like, I want to see this dude's parents. Like I'm assuming it was like his mom got attacked by a bear and then he's the thought, you know, he's the result. And you're just like, what the fuck? Like, but that's all over the place. Now it's Instagram, everything. It's just like, no matter how big you are and how much you lift, it's just like, Oh, well, you know, you've just joined the ranks of like thousands of other people now on the internet. And you're like, Oh God damn it.
1: And I think that's one of the biggest things is Instagram has offered us like an echo chamber of the Roger Bannister effect, right? Where Instagram can now be like, you know, it's, it's one thing to keep up with the Joneses when the Joneses are your neighbors. It's another thing to keep up with the Joneses when they're living in your fucking pocket and there's everyone in the world, right? Like, you know, we have some lifters that are just exceptional, Jamal, Yuri, um, to name a few. But they're, that is not only seen by people present at these meets, it's seen by everyone right when jamal steps up and pulls like ten fifty, or yuri pulls and it's like their totals like 2350 or 2350 at big dogs or whatever it was like everyone sees that and now the bar is literally set and now it's all right everyone with an instagram account and some calibrated plates back to work this is now the new this is the new normal so it's uh yeah it's uh, it's it's interesting to see how that exposure of that high performance is really starting to breed better performing athletes. Yeah. It's crazy. Cause like you said, right, you go to a gym and pretty much any
0: good life or whatever, and you can pat yourself on the back because you're going to be lifting, you know, several multiples more than what, you know, the next guy's lifting. But then at the same time you go on Instagram and you're like, Oh, maybe I should shut the fuck up. Right. <laughs> You know because yeah, this guy's 21 and he just put up you know the the heaviest total in history like i remember there was that uh i think it was like maybe a year or two ago there's that australian guy i think he was the first guy to squat a thousand and pull over 900 in the same meet yeah
1: the god alex
0: simon yeah and he, he was like 19 or 22 like he was real young just That's like great. it's it's absolutely insane and then to think that like if he wanted he could still keep getting stronger into his 30s and 40s you're like man i wonder what that guy's capable of which actually brings up another really interesting point about the fall off right like there are guys who come into the sport and you're like man i wonder where this guy's going to be in 10 years and then in six months you never hear him again and it's like where did these guys go like what, what's going on you know
1: yeah it, well i think there's a lot of factors to that obviously like with you know the, the elephant in the room with that is going to be drug use a lot of the times. And there's underlying health. I mean, you, every breath you take, you got to pay back, man. So if you're, if you're cutting corners and not cutting corners, man, like there's no, there's no drug tests in the jungle, but people take excessive means to get to excessive ends. And that's not necessarily a sustainable lifestyle. Uh, And then there's the money and time and dedication thing. I think a lot of times when you see people falling off, it's, you know, yeah, they're great in the world. Like they're great. They're the best in the world. But like if they have a nine to five and a wife and kids, to maintain that level of discipline that's going to now take to fend off everyone else who's coming for you. Like it's, it's going to be, you're probably a little bit strenuous on your, on your family, on your work, on, you know, everything that exists outside of powerlifting. And if you are reliant on that for your lifestyle, because powerlifting sure as shit can't give you the lifestyle like another professional sport could, you got to make a decision. And, you know, like you kind of alluded to, like you got a bit of a shelf life when it comes to this you can't you, you yeah like you say you get strong into your 30s and maybe your 40s but you're gonna be earning money doing this into your 30s and 40s or you know do you, what's your what do you have an ira what's your what's your pension plan like you got a 401k oh you can't pay your mortgage with your total like all right well it's been fun guys we'll see you later so i think there's a lot of compounding factors that makes power from like just a long-term standpoint a very difficult sport to compete and obviously like the physical nature and what it does or what it can do to your body is one thing, but what it can do to your relationships, what it can do to your like lifestyle, your, your, your work, life balance. Like it's, I've seen a lot of people, you know, sacrifice those things and I'm not, I'm not a judge or jury, but like, yeah, I think sure. If you'd ask some people who've been in the game for a long time, if they could go back and change it, it's like maybe they would have prioritized other things in their life. It's, It's a very unforgiving sport in that way. For what it takes to be at the top and stay at the top, it's very taxing. And if that, that reward of just merely being the best on OpenPowerlifting.org has to mean a lot to you um, because if you have other things in your life that are meaningful, they're going to start going away pretty quickly.
0: Yeah. So in your mind, what, what is like a general hierarchy of like, okay, these are the things that matter, you know, in, in this kind of rank order and then the, the rest it's like they kind of self organize on their own.
1: Yeah, I don't know, man. Like I would say it's less of an activity thing and more of like a core values thing. Like I value like service probably highest in that, on that list. Um, so in whatever degree I can be of service to someone else, whatever that looks like, I think that's kind of, that's for me, That's that's why we're all sort of here. Like I had a conversation with Dave Tate a few years ago and he's got thousands of notebooks. It's crazy. And in every notebook, he writes his 10 core values. And whenever he has to make a decision on anything business or otherwise, he, he resorts to whatever notebook he's jotting all his thoughts down in the day. And he has these 10 core values that sort of guide his decision-making process. So for me, it's not so much like, ah, lifting is my priority or business is my priority or anything like that. Um, I think it's just service. Like for me, that's like, however I can exact that that's kind of what I gravitate towards. And sometimes that's, you know, Hey, I'm in Miami. Like, Hey dude, like a, you know, I would love to get a lift in They're like, yeah, sure, man. Great. And now I'd lift weights and do that. Or, Hey, I want to like take this course or something I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like then it's work. So I, I don't really make decisions based off of like what it is I'm doing. It's more so like why I'm doing it. I think that might be kind of how I'd frame it without ever, like without actually thinking about it too, too long.
0: Yeah, no. And that makes a lot of sense as well. And I, I think that is one of the reasons why so many people kind of stick with such a a thankless sport, so to speak, where there there isn't really any reward. Like the reward is just doing the work and and yeah. you know, seeing seeing the rewards from that. But uh, you know, it really does line up with, with your core values. It's like, do you, you know, are you persistent? Are you dedicated? Are you hard work? Are you intelligent? Are you adaptable, resourceful, like all these different things? And and it really does, you know, on the one hand, <clears throat> I don't think you can look at someone's physique and say, This is who you are because of your physique, you know, fat or skinny or whatever. But at the same time, I, I, I also do, you know, <laughs> I do think like if, if again, if I look at someone like you, I'm like that motherfucker worked hard, you know, he, he didn't, he wasn't given that like he worked hard, you know, and it's like, you can't draw tons of conclusions, but there are certain things you can say, you know, like someone has to work hard to get strong. Someone has to work hard to get big. Someone has to work hard to be, you know, a good sprinter or whatever it is. And I, and I think that that does say something about your values, whether it's business physique, whatever, you know,
1: I don't think, I don't know if I'd go physique, but I definitely get what you're saying. But I would have had this conversation with someone recently. And it was more so like show me someone as they're failing a rep or at the end of a set. And I'll tell you what type of person they are. Yeah. Yeah. Like that to me is like, when I train with someone, it's like, all right, bitch, let's go out on the shield. Right. And if it's like, you know, you can because you've been around enough people and you've taken yourself out behind the woodshed enough times where it's like you know what you know what breaks first. Was it the body or was it the mind? So it's like is there's that scene in that Batman movie with Heath Ledger where he's in the, he's in the jail cell with the other cop and he's like, you know, you find out who people really are when they die. It's like, how many of my friends, how many of your friends did I kill? And he's like, five. He goes, do you want to know which one of them were cowards? I think of that when I train with people sometimes. And I see them like, (laughs) you we're doing like a five by five bench with like the six set AMRAP and I see it and it's like, and I just think to myself, it's like, coward. Like you got, like, what are you doing? Like you, I don't know. For me, you got very little time here in like a very metaphysical sense you have even less time to be able to get strong and you're leaving reps on the table. It's like, I know like physique might not be able to tell me, but like you show me someone, show me how they fail a rep or show me how they like finish a set. And I'll tell you what type of person they are.
0: Yeah, no fair point. So we're coming up on that hour mark. I know you have uh, other things you kind of got to get to. So uh,
1: where can people find you? uh instagram is usually the best uh at the underscore muscle underscore doc. um all the prescript stuff's online at www.pre-script.com podcast itunes and spotify and i don't know a handful of other places is uh rx radio um, i think that's it uh youtube channel i'm sure there's stuff up there muscle doc prescript youtube channels out there i'm sure um yeah but those are those are the high points that's where you can usually find me most days
0: Awesome, man. So definitely go give him a follow. Check out all that stuff. It's going to be linked up in the show notes. So make sure you, uh, you check out his stuff. He's always putting out really great stuff. He's got a lot of shit that, uh, that he pumps out on the regular. Definitely, definitely highly recommend going and following him. Uh, Jordan, thanks so much for joining me, man. Appreciate you, brother. Thanks so much.